Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we will hear from Warren Mosler, an economist and the father of modern monetary theory. His best-known contention is that a sovereign government operating in an environment without fixed exchange rates can never become insolvent because they can always provide more of their currency to pay their debts. It leads to the conclusion that budget deficits in government borrowing are not in and of themselves causes for concern. It's a controversial view that challenges most conventional economic thinking. Today, Mosler discusses his ideas and how they apply to the most important debates playing out in DC. Let's listen in. This meeting really represents the next stage of no labels work in this Congress. Uh, it's, I think, no secret that many supporters of no labels uh, were disappointed not only with the substance of the relief bill that's about to pass, but also the process uh, by which it is moving to the president's desk. That's water under the bridge. Uh, we've studied this episode, we've learned from it. Now we face the prospect in another two, three, four months of another and even larger bill. This one, not relief, but rather a broad-based public investment bill with infrastructure at its heart. And you know, the question is not only what should we do, but how should we pay for it or whether we should pay for it. Uh, and there is an interesting debate based on the experience of the past 10 years to, to the effect that large amounts of borrowing uh, shouldn't be a cause for concern and that inflation after 10 years and more of dramatic declines in interest rates and inflation is no longer a problem that need preoccupy, needs to preoccupy us very much. And these are not only practical differences but there are differences of economic theory in back of these disagreements. And one of the most prominent new areas of discussion is so-called modern monetary theory, you know, of which uh, Warren Mosler is one of the prime architects, if not the original inventor. I'm not going to get into that discussion because I don't know enough to resolve it. At any rate, so, this is a topic that we're about to discuss that is not only important in its own right, but which is linked to the very next large issue that no labels, its supporters, and its friends in the House and the Senate will be seized of. And that's why the opportunity to learn the basics of this theory and also to question its author uh, is so valuable and so timely. And with that brief introduction, Hap, over to you. Uh, Bill, as well, uh, what I said was, as always, Bill set the stage so well and kind of stole some of my thunder from, the, from an introduction standpoint. But it really is a pleasure to have you here and a real honor um, to have Warren to have you here with us tonight. I assume you're calling uh, or, or talking with us from St. Croix, which is your home. Um, and I think is. Uh, Nancy indicated our format tonight will be for me to ask a few questions of you and then turn it over to Jenner Feinstadt, who will ask some additional questions before we open up for questions of the group. So thanks for being with us. So let me lead off with a comment and question, which is similar to what 
along the lines of what Bill said. You're attributed with creating Mosler's Law um, that states there is no financial crisis so deep that a sufficiently large physical adjustment cannot, cannot deal with it. In that regard, if deficits are financed by the central bank, how do you manage market expectations and prevent the dollar from falling and inflation from increasing? And are the concerns voiced by Larry Summers about the onset of inflation um, related to government spending and deficits unwarranted? Okay, so I'm going to come back and say, how about one question at a time? <laughs> but uh, let, let me start with what will answer a lot of those questions. And, and what MMT, what we introduced to the world, and by the way, Maurice Samuels is one of your members. And he's been with me working on this for 40 years now. So he'll, he'll tell you about that to begin. He's been there from before the beginning. But anyway, the, the, there, there are two critical things you need to take away from this uh, Zoom. And the number one is sequence. You can remember the word sequence. And everyone in Congress thinks that they have to get money to spend. They have to get, they have to tax to get money to spend. What they don't tax, you have to borrow from China and leave the debt to the grandchildren. And that's the narrative of not only just Congress, but every legislature in the world right now. Okay, you have to, the reason you tax is to get money to spend. First, the money comes in and then you spend it. Now, that's backwards. And that's the message that we've been working on getting out for 30 years now. In fact, the dollars to pay taxes come only from the US government or its agents, it can have agents, but only from the US government. That's, otherwise they're counterfeit. You can't create your own dollars to pay taxes. So all the dollars to pay taxes come from the government, which means since that's the source, the government, if you look closely at the accounts of the Federal Reserve, which is what I was doing my whole career, they have to spend first before the dollars are in the economy, in the banking system that can be used to pay taxes. They are spending first and then taxes are getting paid. They are spending first and then China buys bonds, okay? With the, with the money that the government spent first. So think sequence, think of the movie theater. The movie theater does not collect the ticket first and then sell. They sell the ticket first and then collect the football stadium sells the ticket first and then collects. They don't go out and collect tickets first and then try and sell them. Okay, same thing, the dollars are the US government's tickets. They have to spend them first before they can be paid. Now, if you talk to any senior official at the Fed and, and um, monetary operations, they say the exact same thing. When I speak to those people, it's not even a discussion point. They have their own language. They say you can't do a reserve drain without doing a prior reserve ad, which means you have to, add the funds first before you can take them out, All right? So this is like common knowledge of every central bank I've talked to in the last 40 years all over the world, but it hasn't gotten through to the legislative branches. So let me stop here. Do you follow what I'm saying? So far, so good. Right, so if you're spending first, and then you first you're crediting accounts at the Federal Reserve, you know, for Citibank, JP Morgan, Bank America, you're crediting accounts for client, for payments first, then, after those funds have been credited, they are used to pay taxes, in which case they're debited, or they're used to buy bonds, in which case those dollars are shifted from to different accounts at the Fed that are called bonds. Bonds are just, you know, savings accounts at the Fed. Functionally, they're no different. Okay, how can there be an issue of solvency or where you're going to get the money? It's not an applicable concept. 
It's never been an applicable concept. The sequence has been totally misunderstood. Okay, so if we go back to your question now, I think that addresses probably two thirds of it. And I can go back and, and cover the parts that, that, you know, answer the questions that that didn't address. So if you can go back to me just one at a time with those questions you asked, I'll put them in this context now that we have the correct sequence. I mean, how can you crowd out if you're spending first and then that money buys your bonds? There isn't any such thing. Then the, then the question is, is yeah. does, the, does the amount of deficits, is there a relation to inflation? Yeah, okay, so let's look at what the public debt is. The public debt are the dollars spent by the government. They credit your accounts with the Federal Reserve Bank. Some get used to pay taxes, and the rest stay in the economy as the, what I call the net money supply in the economy. And that's the public debt. It's the dollars spent by the government that haven't yet been used to pay taxes. And they stay in the economy as the net money supply, and they stay in accounts at the Fed called reserves and called securities accounts, treasury securities. Those are just dollars in accounts at the Fed and green pieces of paper, which are like bank accounts, except it's on you know, green piece of paper called cash. So the public debt are the dollars the government has spent that are still in the economy. They haven't been used to pay taxes. They're dollar bills, they're uh, reserves at the Fed and their securities accounts at the Fed. And they are the money supply in the economy. This economy has $26 trillion of real net money supply supporting it, supporting commerce, supporting everything else. Now, is 26 trillion too large of a money supply or is it not enough of a money supply? That's the question. It's not a question of does the borrowing cause anything to happen? This is just a spending that hasn't been used to pay taxes. It doesn't cause anything. It's just the residual money that people earned from the government. They sold things to the government. Some was used to pay taxes and the rest sits in their accounts in one place or another. Is it too much? Is it too little? So now you can look at the economic indicators and decide whether the problem with the economy is there's too much money in it and it's overheating and inflation's too high or there's not enough money in it. We have unemployment and it needs more. Okay, and it's... It is that simple. So what is your view now? So my view right now is this is a very different recession. We have had personal income go up through the now third fiscal adjustment. And personal income is higher than it would have been if we hadn't had the crisis. Now, normally when you have a crisis, you get a big drop in income. People can't buy things and then spending drops. This time that didn't happen. This time we had a large increase in personal income and spending dropped. And so savings has gone way up. And it's a very unusual situation. Now that increase in income did not cause an increase in spending because all the, many of the avenues for spending like restaurants and things like that are, were shut. And so people can't spend on that. Also, a lot of spending is through credit. You borrow money to buy a car, you borrow money to buy a house and that's our home, home improvements or whatnot. And when you're out of work, even if you're getting unemployment compensation, you don't, you don't borrow, you don't, uh, you don't qualify for that kind of credit. And so the, the uh, consumption based on credit has dropped off you know, substantially. So it's a very unusual. I'm not sure you want to, how much time you want to spend. I can go through the details of this economy and what's wrong with it and what's, what it needs, but I, I won't be uh, answering your MMT question. So, I'll let you decide on that. <laughs> okay, let me let me uh, move on to another question, and, and yeah. maybe others will follow up. I mean, like uh, we're in the real estate business, and we're seeing yeah. inflation and 
and construction costs. But yes. um, I want to acknowledge Tom Reed, who is co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, a Republican from upstate New York, who glad to be with us, uh, Congressman Reed. But one complaint about government is that it doesn't allocate resources strategically. And you, that complaint is made about Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. And by freeing politicians, uh, it, can, it can cause even more undiscipline. You know, for example, in a recent New York Times op-ed, you may have read that by Stephen Ratner, asked why we should be spending hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus checks in the pockets of millions of Americans that are financially unaffected uh, by the COVID crisis. We're sending over half a trillion dollars to the states and localities when less than $100 billion or something like that is needed to cover the revenue losses. So uh, is saying, you know, say la vie, so to speak, with government spending causing uh, undisciplined and unwanted <laughs> spending of dollars? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, those are legitimate political questions. I completely agree with those questions. Now, just because the spending isn't going to have any adverse consequences doesn't mean it's the role of government to do that. And that's what the legislature has to decide for itself. So we can tell you the consequences and what's going to happen. And then you have the question of whether it's a legitimate function of government or not. Those are two separate questions. With that, one, one thing is, one other question I have before I turn it over to Jennifer, is one of the criticisms of modern monetary theory is it spurs inflation, weakens the dollar, and necessitates tax increases. But is that the point? In other words, in the long term- Okay, so let me start, stop for a moment. Good, thank modern, you. Modern monetary theory doesn't, it's not about proposals, it's a framework for analysis. It tells you the sequence, the government spends first, and so there's no solvency problem. You're not gonna go broke, you're not gonna turn into Greece. You're not gonna turn in, the federal government's not gonna turn into California. California has to get money first before it can spend. The federal government has to spend the money first before taxes can be paid. So it's the exact opposite of all the states. You have to get a ticket from the stadium before you can see the show or you know go to the game. They have to sell the ticket before they can collect it. It's, you know, it's the opposite. It's the difference between the user and the issuer. And that's our framework for analysis. And so we can give you that framework. And then within that framework, now you now policy options change and the questions change. And I think you saw what happened. A lot of your questions, when you tried to rephrase them, aren't applicable anymore. We have a whole new set of questions that drives policy. Once you understand, you know, you're watching a different channel on the television set than you thought you were watching. So let me get right into the second part, which gets into this and it's very quick. And that is for the longest time that I can remember, my whole 40 years and maybe more in the financial sector, the central banks have this interest rate thing backwards. Raising rates causes inflation. Lowering rates fights inflation. Okay, and the data all shows it. And I can show you the income interest channels and the forward pricing channels that cause that to happen. And they've got it backwards. Now, the reason they have it backwards is because they have theory and models that carry over from the gold standard that effectively were gone in 1934. And for fixed exchange rate policies that would apply in Hong Kong and Bulgaria, but not the US or Canada or anywhere else. And they've got this thing backwards. So one of the concerns is, well, if what do we do if the central bank raises rates to fight inflation? Well, you don't have that concern if the central bank and everyone else realizes raising rates is throwing gasoline on the fire, it's making inflation worse. Then you don't even ask that question. 
And yet that question now has been an obstacle to policy. So I think it's critical to get that understanding the right way around. And uh, central banker Richard Warner did a, a study on this two years ago, I think, and he showed through all his econometrics that exactly what I told you, they've got this thing backwards. And I've been, as an investment manager, have done very well over the years knowing that they've got this thing backwards, trying to tell everybody, I haven't kept it a secret, and nobody's been wanting to listen. But you know, we're starting to get a little bit more attention now, especially after uh, you know, 10 years of zero interest rates from the Federal Reserve and the economy has not done what they thought. And they said, well, our models are broken. And I say, yeah, you've got it backwards. And I said it in 2008 and nine when they lowered rates. It's going to make the economy worse, not better. It's going to bring inflation down, not up. It's backwards. It doesn't cause inflation. Europe, after 10 years, uh, negative rates, still no inflation, still the economy isn't any better. Back in Japan, 30 years of zero rates, quantitative easing, they bought every bond. And I was telling them this at the Bank of England meetings back in 1997 and eight. The zero rates are not inflationary. They don't drive the currency down. They don't do any of that. You've got the thing you know, backwards. And so what did they say? What did Janet Yellen said? Well, we just need a little more time after seven years. And the central bank, European Central Bank, after 10 years, we just need a little more time. The Bank of Japan, after 30 years, it'll work. We just need more time. It's backwards. All right, so they've got two things backwards. They've got the sequence backwards on spending comes first, and everybody in the Fed knows it. And they've got the interest rate thing backwards. And if you can work through that to understand that, you'll have a major breakthrough in coming up with good bipartisan policy to put the country on the right track. So with that, Jennifer Fonstead, uh, it's, yeah. it's to you to ask the next questions. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much, Hap. I appreciate it. Um, hi, Warren. Nice, nice hi. to meet you. You too. Um, I have a couple of questions. As, as, as you may, or may not know, I'm in, the, I'm in the tech world, so I'm coming a little bit from that angle. Um, and thanks to a lot of the technology advances that have spurred uh, productivity in the last over the last decade, the Fed's been able to print money and Congress has been able to persistently run deficits without inflation taking off or affecting the dollar. But there's been a massive surge in the cryptocurrency market. And uh, some may see that as a possible sign of inflation um, and or uh, an alternative to the dollar. How do you think about cryptocurrency and, and other alternative uh, currencies like that? Yeah, you know, I don't think that has any more effect than um, if you saw a big upsurge in some new form of casino gambling. You know, it doesn't affect the dollar or the Fed or the Treasury because they, the way they work, what the, the dollar does for them is it provisions the government. The government wants a military, it wants public health, it wants a legal system. And the way it gets, it provisions itself is number one, it imposes tax liabilities that are payable only in dollars. And so uh, you need dollars or you're going to lose your house and your car and whatnot and because for tax liabilities. Now, it, the tax liabilities create people willing to sell things to the government to get the dollars to pay the tax. And that's what drives the system. It's a tax-driven currency. The currency of the dollar is a tax credit to pay U.S. government-imposed taxes. And there isn't anything anybody can do around that to interfere with that process. It's a simple, coercive monopoly. And people go to work and get $50,000 a year to be a soldier. They get $200,000 a year to be a Supreme Court judge or whatever it is. And this is how the economy gets the funds it needs to pay the tax. The military goes out, they sell six or 700 billion worth of uh, goods and services, people and goods to the military. 
government's earning the, the, the population's earning the money to pay the tax. And Bitcoin, crypto doesn't, it's a different um, process, a different circuit. There's no overlap. It doesn't interfere. It doesn't threaten it. It's, it's just, uh, there's no connection. There's no channel between the two. There's no channel between anything and the monetary system. It's a simple monopoly where the government sets the tax liability and then tells you what you need to, what the tax credit is, the dollar, and then here's what you have to do to get them. Serving the army, we'll give you 50,000, sell us a tank, we'll give you 5 million, whatever it is. Got it. Yeah. So um, over the last decade, we, when we've had tech, deflationary technology improvements, yes. keeping bay, at bay, yes. can, you point, can you, besides that, this last decade, can you point to other historical examples, either in the US or in other countries where MMT has been able to durably deliver full employment and rising real wages? Well, let me get back to that. You know, uh, what MMT is a framework to analyze policies. So I can tell you times when deficit spending has generated higher levels of employment. And I can tell you, so for example, if this is the last good example, okay, so the 1.9 trillion fiscal adjustment was is in the process of passing, right? So every economist who's paid to be right, not the propaganda types, but the guys who are paid to get it right, will now raise their forecast for GDP. I saw a forecast going from three to six because of the fiscal package. So that tells you that at least the professional economists think that's gonna work and they're, they're pretty good at that. They're pretty good at predicting how fiscal adjustments will affect the economy. When we had uh, a tax increase, like in Japan, when they raised the consumption tax, all the economists predicted this is gonna be a big setback and it was. Okay, so what's happening is the economists are forecasting what fiscal policy will do to the economy. Uh, what MMT says is that this 1.9 trillion is not gonna cause the checks to bounce. It doesn't matter if the Fed buys the securities or not, they're gonna get sold at the same interest rate. It's not gonna make any difference. Uh, it, it doesn't tell you that the economy will grow at 3%, 4%. That's what you have to do your econometrics with. That's where you have to, your, your macroeconomists, they, they already know how to do that. They can get that part right. The Fed economists do that, they get, they get that part right. The part they don't get right is the effect of an interest rate change. They all forecasted that when uh, rates came down, that would add 1% to growth or half a percent, 3% over a certain time. And it didn't work. They've got the interest rate thing backwards, but they've got fiscal policy correct. So um, I know we're in an era, a period where we're contemplating, we've just had a large um, uh, coronavirus bill passing and we've got the infrastructure bill next. Yes. Uh, with very large uh, deficits um, potentially coming out of that. What yeah. happens if MMT theory doesn't work? What happens if not well, wages go up, but all those gains are just eaten up by inflation? Yeah, well, that, it's not that MMT theory doesn't work. I can tell you exactly what or why things happen, what's going to happen, and, or why this might happen or why that might happen. Under my framework, understanding the sequence, understanding the interest rates, things backwards. So I can tell you that the government's not going to bounce checks. It's not going to cause uh, rates to go up. In fact, there was a big, big thing about rates going up back with the last package in 2009, right? It, it didn't happen. We were all saying it doesn't work that way. Rates go up when the Fed votes for higher rates. It's got nothing to do with the size of the public debt. But inflation is another story, okay? And I can tell you that if you spend money and buy things, that spending can drive up prices. And so you've got to, again, go through your econometrics, look at what's offered for sale, look and see if the spending of the government is going to cause 
those prices to go up. Now, there's also a big difference between a one-time increase in prices and what we call inflation, which is a continuous thing that kind of runs away. And there is no such thing that I've ever seen in my 50 years in markets of this continuous runaway inflation. I've, I've just never seen it. The places where that appears to have happened, I just did a paper on the Weimar Republic. It's, it's, inflation always comes from the government paying higher prices. So if prices go up and the government pays those higher prices, then those prices are institutionalized. They, they become part of the institutional structure. And that's where prices are until the next time government pays higher prices. So when governments continually pay higher and higher prices, such as through indexation as they had in Latin America, then you've got government-driven inflation. And that's what happened in Weimar. You had a government policy of paying higher and higher prices for foreign exchange and for gold because of the uh, Treaty of Versailles and the war reparations. It forced it on the government. And as soon as that policy stopped and they were relaxed, inflation stopped. And so, yes, the spending can cause prices to go up. I wouldn't use the word inflation because that has other implications. Uh, if, if prices do go up, you can always slow down the spending, stop it, change the policies of the spending. And I, I have to say, again, I've been in markets. I, I was a fund manager for 15 years, I, number one fixed income manager in the world for 15 years. And uh, from 1982 to 1997, and I turned the fund over to my partners. We had about $3.5 in capital. It's fixed income, relative value, zero duration, market neutral. One of the early funds like that. Anyway, uh, I have never seen inflation come from excess demand and excess spending. Can it happen? Absolutely. Could we do it the way we're going? It's certainly possible. But I've never seen it in any country in the world in 50 years. You look at Turkey now with its very high inflation, the public debt's low and the, and the deficit the de uh, deficit spending's relatively low. It's coming from somewhere else, usually from uh, corruption in the banking channels, uh, insiders qualifying for loans, selling it for foreign exchange, driving the currency down, that type of thing. When that gets endemic, you have no chance. And that's what happened in Venezuela. That's what happens you know, in those types of places. It's not excess spending by the population. It's not unemployment getting too low and workers driving up wages. It's not. It's generally not the channel for, that it happens. But it's, it's, it's possible. And through the MMT framework, you can look at the numbers and, and see if that's going to happen or not. Thank you so much. I, I sure. think, I believe Representative Tom Reed has a question. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, Warren. And, and yeah. obviously, um, I, I am always willing to open my mind to new theories and to new ideas. And I will just tell you, uh, as someone who is struggling uh, to understand MMT and to yes. understand uh, where we're at with 30 trillion, 28 trillion dollars worth of national debt and uh, this de facto policy that we've seemed to embrace as a country um, uh, and doing it in a way that I don't think we've done it co cognizantly and in an open debate uh, fashion, but maybe recognizing that maybe we're at that uh, phase in our country and causes me yeah. a lot of uh, concern. That's why I wanted to participate tonight. Yeah. But one of the things, so if, say we understand the sequencing, say we understand um, and, and understand interest rates and, and have gotten that all wrong. Um, the, the component I wanted to raise a question to you on tonight is uh, the taxation piece. Yes. So if, if we're dumping money in, if we're just spending on the creating the dollars yeah. um, and putting it into this economic system of America and interest rates, uh, we got that correct now. 
the taxation piece really concerns me, does it not? Yeah. Because yes. somehow you have to still have confidence because the whole fundamental economic model is based on confidence. No, there's no confidence. If it was based on confidence, if it was based on confidence, there wouldn't be too many currencies left in the world. Okay. Uh, okay. The, the, com the confidence is if you don't pay your taxes, you're in serious trouble. The IRS has to be coercive. It has to be strong. Otherwise, the whole thing breaks okay. down. Okay. Right, so, so it's, it's yeah. Okay. So, right. so, so you do have to, so the, the threat of penalty of yes, yes. Taxes has to be in there. That, that's uh, what drives the whole system. Okay. So yeah. that would mean then if you have this type of debt load or whatever you're going to use the taxes for, what are you paying the taxes for then under MMT? Yes. The, purpose, what, of the, the yeah. purpose of the tax liability is to create things for sale that where the people selling them want dollars in exchange. Okay, so, um, and, you know, I used to use the example when I gave a talk to a room full of people like this, I'd, I'd hold up my business card and I'd say, I have jobs after this. And if anybody wants to stay, I'll give you a business card. And nobody's interested in that. I said, well, by the way, there's only one door out of this room. And there's a guy there with a nine millimeter. You can't get out of this room without my business card. Okay, there's a, this is a tax. And the tax man's at the door. You can't get out of here. Now, all of a sudden, if you can feel it, you're unemployed. You are now looking for a job that pays my business card and not dollars or yen or anything else. You can't get out of the room. And so the tax liability created sellers of labor, people like yourself, who are now willing to stay and wash the floor for me, clean the floor, to, to be able to get my card to get out of the room. So the purpose of the tax liability is not to bring in money for you all to spend. It's to, it's to create... Uh, sellers of real goods and services who want those dollars to pay the tax. So now you can spend your infinite supply of dollars, you know, okay. what you want to provision the government, what resources. So, yeah. So then how do you set that level of tax liability that threatens and coerces people to go out and get a job? Okay. So number one, we, we already have it. Okay. And if you don't, uh, we've got plenty of people looking for paid work. That's what the unemployment numbers. We have a lot more people who aren't working that aren't looking for paid work. But we've got at least 10 million, maybe 20 million, who would take jobs if they were there. Which means there's that much slack in the economy. And that's, the, that's where the word slack comes in. You've heard the Fed use the word slack. That are things for sale that can't find buyers. There wouldn't be anything for sale in exchange for dollars without the dollar tax liabilities. Those are the things that's creating this slack, these things for sale. And so you look at what's for sale, you look at what prices the government has to pay to get things, and that gives you your indication of the slack in the economy. If you suddenly find yourself having to pay 2%, 3%, 5% more for the same thing, that means you've used up the slack, now you're just driving up prices. And so the economic data is very important, but you have to know what it means. The price data is telling you what the government has to pay to provision itself, how effective it's, it is at creating goods and sellers of these goods and services. Now, uh, so you follow me so far on that? I, I follow that yeah. side of it, but I okay. still don't understand how you would set the tax liability. Well, well we already have one. So, for, first of all, we already have one. I get, so you, it. I get so, that. So you only have to decide whether it has to go up or down. Yeah, that's my question. Yeah. And it seems so like it would have to be very high. Right. Okay. So if the government's not... You look at how much the government's going to need to buy. You have to make an assessment as to whether that's there to be sold, whether it's for sale. 
if it's not for sale and you tr if you try and buy more than what's for sale, you're just going to drive prices through the roof. You're not going to get any more. You can't get blood from a stone. If you need to create more things for sale, draw more things out of the private sector, you're going to need higher tax liabilities or different tax liabilities to attract those resources. Absolutely. And that's, that's why productivity is so important. We need to be able to get the most for the least. We need to replace as many jobs as possible so that we can have enough people to do the jobs that we're going to need over the next so many years. There's always more to do than there are people to do it. All these movements against productivity, against tech, against trade that's taking jobs, that's a good thing. If China does all this work for us, great. Now we have these people to be able to build infrastructure and do all the things you want to do. They're creating fiscal space for us by building this stuff for us, right? By quote, taking our jobs, and they're always taking the lowest paying ones, by the way, and allow you to either build them up through private or public, either way. Private sector needs to have this slack also. It can't hire anybody. We're all hiring from the same pool of people. We're all using the same steel. We're all using the same you know, resources. Okay, And so uh, there has to be slack in the economy to be able to increase spending, to be able to get the new goods and services online that you want to do. So I think ma maximizing productivity is critical. That, okay, and that I agree with. I totally understand that. I'm, I'm totally yeah. on board with that. And I see so many people who want to like outlaw lawnmowers, so we have to cut the lawn with scissors, so we we'll have more jobs. It's like no, 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 jobs. no. We don't want to. No. Jo yeah, jobs are the cost, not the benefit. We've got plenty of things to do. Now they don't understand how we can fund them, but you do now. Once you understand sequence, you understand how you can fund them. There are people looking for paid work. They can be funded if that increases the money supply, which is public debt. Fine. It just means the economy needs a larger money supply. Nobody knows how large money supply we need until after, but we know people are willing to work just to get the money to add to the money supply. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up for work. You know, at, at the macro level. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. I think it might be time to turn it back to Hap uh, to moderate questions and answers. All right, Joel Myers, you're at the numero uno with question. Uh, thank you. Uh, so you're saying that there's a free lunch. The government. No, 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 no. When you have to work to produce something, the work is the cost. You can't get no, no, anything no, without working. Uh, 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 that's on the individual level. I'm talking about yeah. overall. You're saying that the government can create value out of thin air. Well, wait, I didn't use the word create value. I'm, I'm saying, where did I say that? Well, uh, we'll play what I'm saying is, what so I'm you, saying, all right, let me say you're it again. implying that by spending money. No, no, let me start over. The government, through its tax liabilities, can create sellers who need dollars. Well, I hear what you're saying, but that doesn't make sense because right now the government takes in $3 trillion and spending 7 or $8 trillion. Okay, the tax, so, but the tax liabilities have created a need to sell $7 trillion worth of goods and services to the government. And the government has or to the private, you know, to the economy. And it's- Well, no, the government has just spent that money. Uh, right, Not that right. the government needed those. Right. In fact, they may okay. have wasted it and competed look, with other things that would have been increased productivity. The tax liability creates a need to pay taxes and a desire to save. It creates two things. When you impose a tax liability of $3 trillion, you create a $3 trillion need to pay taxes. You also create a multi-trillion dollar need but to save. Seven. Yeah, so you created a $4 trillion need to save. And, and that money is going into pension funds and IRAs and KEOs and, and people want it in their mattress. It's, it's a money supply. That got added to the money supply. 
the tax liability plus COVID and everything else created this massive desire to earn money and not spend it. And, and it allows the government to do that. Yeah, but as Again, the debt rises, it takes more and more stimulus to keep things going. Well, okay, but that's more rhetoric. So I always tie things down to you know, the debits and credits here. So as, the, as government spends money, it's adding to the money supply, right? It's now 28 trillion. The, the base, the true base money supply, the net financial assets in the economy to the penny. The CBO will confirm that that's the net financial assets in the economy. Is there a desire for more? You, certainly. Yeah, because, but listen, uh, we're, we're playing your yeah. game with the words. So let me just yeah. make this question. So okay. you have 28 trillion in debt. Uh, you have 35, 40, 50 trillion. Uh, suppose interest rates go to 10%. Yeah. And then you have 5 trillion a year. You have pay an interest I mean, you're only taking in three trillion and, okay. and this escalates out of control what happens then okay that five trillion will contribute to inflation you'll still be able to pay it but that will contribute to inflation it'll be a strong contributor to inflation and so that's why you don't raise rates because raising rates causes inflation if you don't raise rates rates uh, but inflation may go even more because uh, you have more and more of a deficit okay but japan's deficit is Two and a half times ours. Japan if was an outlier because they had tremendous saving and an aging population. Was I, a I know. And I heard, I've been here now for 30 something years. Okay. And, well, now, and, then, and then Europe became an outlier. Now the US is an outlier. Everybody's an outlier. If you look at the channels, the zero rates do not cause inflation. They cause inflation to be lower, not higher. Japan. You talked about the Weimar Republic. Yeah. It, yeah. Inflation stopped eventually, but everybody was poor then. Of course it stopped nobody had any money to spend no, no but one of the things that propagated the inflation was the high interest rates that set by the uh, central bank okay right, that was one of the that the high rates caused the inflation the high well rates you can argue that they went hand in hand let's okay, move well, on to, to steve Schenker, yeah. the next question okay i'm i'm going to move away from uh, the discussion of interest rates but i do want to talk taxation for a minute sure um, it seems to me one of the one of the outcomes of an MMT framework is that one of the tools to moderate uh, inflation is raising or lowering taxes. Okay, and let me just say that that moderates demand, spending. Yes. But, but while our, our oil and our great inflation in the 70s was from a foreign monopolist raising the price of oil, it had nothing to do with demand, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So if one of the tools yeah. that you have is taxation policy, yeah, but that the moderation is going to be from taxing people who have a high ratio of consumption to savings, because yeah. you're trying to mo moderate the consumption levels. Yes, would that imply raising taxes on lower and middle income payers as opposed to high income payers, you know, who have a higher ratio of savings to consumption, which is something that would be very difficult to get through our political environment. Yes. Okay, that would be the implication if you wanted to. Reduce spending. You've got to take away spending from the people who are doing the spending. If that's your policy to reduce spending, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. do you and have that, a suggestion how you would actually make such a policy work in our current legislative environment, yeah. where neither so, side wants to tax middle class or right. workers? So you can tax for, let's say, two reasons. Probably more. One would be to reduce spending, lower demand. The second reason would be for social equity. You think that it's just a negative for society for some people to have quote that much money, whatever that means. So I, I know when uh, Senator Sanders wanted to do a $2 trillion tax for Medicare for all, Medicare for all is a deflationary event. It brings prices down. It 
saves the country 500 you know billion a, uh, a year in real cost and so you don't need a tax if anything from an economic point of view you've lower taxes to pay for medicare for all okay but he had a two trillion tax in there quote to pay for it to make the numbers balance and i was saying look you don't need the tax for medicare for all if if you want to tax the rich for social equity fine that can be your political position separate it out don't combine it with a medicare for all bill because you just that's the reason we don't have medicare for all because there's an implied need for a tax it was understood medicare for all doesn't need a tax if anything you lower the tax uh but we want to we want social equity so we want a two trillion tax on the rich fine break them up put it through congress put it up for a vote right and so uh, i don't know does that help your question answer your question yeah, let's, let's, we got a number of questions, if you could just limit okay. your questions to, okay. to one. Uh, Tim Sloan. Oh, thanks, Hap. Uh, well, thanks for the, the presentation. I think your uh, description of mon modern monetary theory has been uh, probably one of the more coherent uh, presentations that I've heard, uh, yeah. which really leads to my question, and that is, um, I, frequently, I hear uh, policymakers and others using uh, MMT as a basis for saying things like deficits don't matter. Right, right. And 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 therefore justifying almost any policy decision. Yes. Because of of their mis maybe their misunderstanding. Yes. The sequencing. Could you comment on that? Yeah, and it makes me cringe a lot of the things I hear and see, and I try the best I can to put all the fires out, but of course I can't. And I'm available. Can I send any, you a bigger hose? Yeah, I, look, I'm available for anybody who wants a briefing. Uh, I, I'd sit there in front of any congressional panel and have a couple of officers from the Fed sitting next to me to confirm it all, and everybody will get the straight story of what it is and what it isn't. And I hear all these things. Oh, MMT is when you monetize the debt. And this, and this it's got nothing. That's not what it is. Okay. What it'll tell you is that that QE and debt monetization doesn't do anything. It's just a placebo. And saying that and writing that for 30 years. Uh, it doesn't say you should do it or shouldn't. It's just a placebo. You know, why, why would you? I guess if it makes people feel good, you can do it. But there's no economic rationale behind it. You know, the Fed's just got that wrong. Next question to John Donovan. Great, thanks. Um, I studied the framework with an objective to debunk it. And, um, and I found that the framework actually is compelling. So I'm dating it, I'm not married to it yet. There were a couple of <laughs> questions, Warren, that I, I had about some of the specifics. Like the, the best description that I think is left off the table that I read somewhere, I don't think it was in your early work, but that the government's the only big spender that doesn't do net present value or a balance sheet. And so a dollar in and a dollar out are viewed the same. Uh, and yeah. One is for a long-term investment, another one is not. And right. I worry a little bit that no one has separated the $1.9 trillion package into what is investment versus what is gonna expire at the end of the month. Because one creates velocity of money, the other one a little bit uh, less so. So yeah. I, I didn't didn't mean to give you. I, a, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Two 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 yeah. really specific questions that are not philosophical. That's why I told you I'm dating your framework. Um, okay. Because <laughs> I, I don't need philosophy. So I, I worry a little bit about micro bubbles. 
um, yes. in the supply and demand, because one of the ways that the Fed has to manage this is to start to buy down the yield curve. And, and MMT now has a whole bunch of different forms of language. Um, so, so one, the old metric, which we kind of all understood and everybody's going to fight forever, was unemployment. And you measure every week in jobs and every month in the unemployment rate. And it's, it's not wholly accurate, but it's a number yeah. you acquire through addition. Yes. Now we have this yield curve effect and supply and demand and the, um, and the perception that goes with it. And the Fed has to step in. And I worry that as they step in, you start to have big market betters and then they start to lean in. And then the, the Fed's in the business of trying to buy the yield curve down as opposed to support the Treasury in its uh, infrastructure investments. And so I, I, I worry a little bit that, and I'd like to hear your view on yeah. this hard metric that's a lead that can be a real time indicator versus a lagging metric that has perception built in. And how do you run this instrumentation, this giant plane for right. something that's that's not accurate and is not timely? So the, what the yield curve does, apart from, from, you know, it's a risk adjusted thing. And, and one of the risks is that the Fed's going to raise rates. So once they understand that that causes inflation, that goes away. And then uh, there's no reason to not leave rates permanently at zero. Tell the Treasury to stop selling anything over a three-month bill, which is basically a cash instrument. So that, that has no effect on any market. And you don't have to change any institutional structure to make that policy change. They can do it right at the Treasury. And then there is no yield curve issue. Nobody even talks about it. The information is not even published anymore. You now have a permanent zero-rate policy, much like Japan has had for 30 years. And we can see there's no currency depreciation. There's no inflation. You don't get they're running deficits twice as high as ours without a problem. So you can see the interest rate itself, zero rate, doesn't cause it a problem. Okay. And then the burden of proof is on anybody who wants to change that interest rate to something else. They're going to have to come up with a good reason to do it. I haven't heard any good reasons in my 40 something years, but maybe they'll have one, but I don't know what it is. So I think that addresses that aspect of your problem. And then, then you can run your fiscal policy without fear that interest payments may go up because they're all going to go to zero once you're only selling three-month bills and the policy rate zero. Federal interest payments go to zero pretty quickly over time. I think the duration of the portfolio is maybe four years now or something on average. So there'll still be some long bonds, but not, not a lot. And so so that, that'll no longer. Now, what I look at, let's look at what interest is. Okay, when you raise rates, the government has to pay interest on the public debt one way or another. It either pays it on treasury securities or on interest on reserves, they call it. But one way or another, it's paying interest on the full 28 trillion. So what you're doing is you're paying what I call it is basic income for people who already have money. Because you raise rates 1%, the government's going to pay another $300 billion a year of interest income to people who already have money, treasury securities or reserve holders. Now, I've heard arguments in favor of basic income, against basic income, I've never heard anybody propose that we have basic income, but only for people who already have money. Okay, there is no, nobody wants that. And yet, that's what the Federal Reserve's causing the government to do every time it raises rates. Or by having any positive policy rate, it's nothing more than basic income for people who already have money. Now, if you want to spend money, fine, but I don't think that there's any political you know, uh, will to do that. So again, once you understand debits and credits, the monetary system, and you see what it is, a lot of policies uh, 
options open up in front of you that are very, very positive. David Roscoe. Yes, um, thank you very much. I just have one question. I just thinking about Japan as a non-reserve currency country and thinking of the United States as being the world's reserve currency. Yeah. Does the fact that we are the reserve currency of the world have any impact on the efficacy of MMT or is it irrelevant? And if it is it's, relevant, it's, yeah. what are the odds that when we lose our world reserve currency status, that somehow there's some sort of flex point in how all this works? Thank you. Okay, so I'm not gonna ask you the question, but let me say whenever I ask, you know, a professional economist, what do you mean by a reserve currency? They don't, they don't have an answer. And, uh, and what it generally means is that other currencies hold it as reserves against emergencies or whatever. But it's generally held um, in order to drive trade. So if a country like China buys dollars, that causes their currency to be weaker than otherwise, which drives a trade surplus on their part and trade deficit on our part. And so the, the large... Uh, uh, exporting nations, the exporters run uh, have have reserves of the current of the currency they want to target. So if China wants to sell to Europe, they'll buy euros as you know to try and drive exports to Europe. If they and if they want to export to the U.S., they'll buy dollars. In Japan and Korea and all the large exporters, that's their policy. That's what they do. Uh, Europe used to be the same thing. Germany used to buy lira. In Italian lira, which they didn't want, but because they wanted to export to Italy, and so they, it, it would, so lira was a reserve currency for Germany, not because it was any value, just to drive exports. So, to, to get back to your question, it basically it, it doesn't matter. But I want to give you another important misunderstanding. Two here. One is the reason a dollar everybody has dollars is because we're a net importer. When you import, you pay for everything with dollars. If they spent those dollars here, we wouldn't be a net importer. We'd be a balance trade. Okay, but they don't spend the dollars. They accumulate them at the Fed or somewhere else. And so we have a trade deficit. And that and there, that means somebody else, we have a deficit. Somebody else has a surplus. They're holding the dollars as reserves. So that say, okay, the U.S. is a reserve currency. Japan's, up before the earthquakes, and then now again, runs a surplus. Well, that means nobody has yen. So they're not a reserve currency. Europe, they're running a trade surplus. So nobody has euros. In fact, everybody's short because they're running a surplus. We have to borrow euros. The rest of the world is a net borrow of euros to buy things from Europe. So um, Europe wanted to, they wanted the euro to be a reserve currency and they wanted to have a trade surplus. Well, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. If you have a trade surplus, it means nobody has your currency. You have theirs. If you want to, you want to be a reserve currency, it means they have to buy you know, you have to buy their stuff and pay for it with your currency. Then, then they have it. And now you're the reserve currency. So it's uh, and of course the other thing totally forgotten in trade is that exports are real costs, imports are real benefits. We've got that backwards. The worst policy going for our economy now is its tariffs, which has trade entirely backwards. It's anti-productivity. It's taking away space for future government spending by fighting against this idea that you know we're a net importer. Uh, the real wealth of any country is your pile of real stuff. It's everything you produce domestically, plus what you can bring in, minus what you have to send out. That's your real wealth. Okay, and so it's you want as much domestic production as possible, full employment. You want 
as many imports as possible and the fewest exports that you have to use to pay for them. That, that's how you optimize your real terms of trade and your net wealth. That's a, another topic where we don't have time for it. But again, if anybody wants a, a briefing on any of these types of uh, matters, I'm more than happy to do it. We're getting a good briefing right now, sir. Okay, good. Uh, good. Roger Serbison. I talked about uh, China and uh, China is actually uh, a net seller of treasury bonds now. So the buyer of the treasury bonds is the Federal Reserve, not China, as I understand it. Yeah. So, um, but China is still running a sur trade surplus, which has been going up. So they're accumulating their dollar financial assets in other securities other than treasury securities. And what kind of securities would that be? You know, I, I don't know, uh, but it could be corporate debt. They could be buying U.S. stocks. They could be buying property. The U.S. There's, there's, they're buying some kind of financial assets with the U.S. Dollars. They could be paying down dollar debt that they had before with the with the funds. I, I don't know exactly what they're doing on a month-to-month -month basis with the dollars that they're earning. But they have they have uh, closed yeah, financial because, system. Um, they've been forcing a lot of Chinese companies to sell off their U.S. holdings. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Ping Yang Insurance is certainly one that yeah. had to sell. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I understand where they're accumulating. They, they, they may have dollar bonds that they're letting run off or something like that, uh, you know, or dollar loans that they use to, to, for their projects around the world and that they're paying down. I don't know. But if you're a net, if you have a trade surplus, uh, you've got those currencies coming in. Andrew Gunlock. Uh, Warren, I'm Andrew Gunlock. I'm the CEO of Bleischroder Global Money Managers. I agree with you 100%. I would add that the more money we send overseas, the faster they grow overseas. But here's, so I have two, two questions, um, if you can help me uh, think through it. The first is an easy one. Where should rates be today, the 10-year? So it's at 150, and yeah. basically the new framework post-GFC is to take the U.S. times point, you know, 0.6 or 0.5, which is the model that you've outlined, and then to take the Bund times the, times the other percentage that's remaining as the austerity model, which doesn't work. And I'm just curious if you if you were managing money today, pricing uh, pricing the security, you know, pricing the currencies and pricing the the, the borrowing rate, yeah. how would you approach it? Where would you end up? That's the first question. Well, I, I look at the euro dollar futures, yeah, and, and they tell you where the market thinks Fed funds are going to be, the policy rate is going to be, whatever they call it, right. over the next ten years, right? right. And you can see how it goes up and down and up and whatnot, and you have to decide whether that's a reasonable expectation of what the Fed's going to do, because that's all it is. It's nothing more than that. It doesn't matter what the Bund does or what, it, what Euro does or anything else. If the Fed raises rates, rates go up, right? No, and, I, I understand uh, the mechanism. I'm saying if you take if you just take the U.S. tips less treasuries, they're imply, implied inflation two and a half percent. Would you agree right. or disagree with that based on what you know today? So the thing with the tips is there, what, what's implied is the difference between inflation and the Fed's rate settings, right? What is what the real rate's going to be? Okay, and, and again, you, the Fed is not right now. The the markets are discounting the idea that the Fed's going to have a negative real rate. Right, they're going to have zero rates when inflation's two or so. That's when right. I first started way back in the '70s, it was the opposite. You know, if inflation was two, the Fed was going to be at four. So what what they're doing is all these markets are just in, trying to anticipate, second guess the Fed. Now, if it becomes understood that raising rates causes inflation, and zero is the base case, then I think that's, they just peg there forever. 
and, and the curves go flat and you've got some option value in case the Fed decides to do something else. But uh, Right. All right. So here, yeah. here's the second question. And, oh, look, and you're also not pricing in the long end convexity, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Correct. So we, we don't want to get into that. Now. Let's go. We'll do that offline. <laughs> I'd love to have okay. that. Here's the second question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, bank, the, the second question is the banking system as yeah. the velocity provider post what you described as Fed account. Yeah. So under Obama, it was zero because they were attacking the banks all day long and the balance sheets. Yeah. Now it's not zero. And my question is this. Why in that model do you even need the banks? To, to Jennifer's question about, about technology in banking. Why allow the banks to create a curve at all? It also goes to real wages. Why not just put money directly into people's accounts at the Fed, which we have the technology to do today that we never yeah. had before. I'm just curious how you're thinking about it. I realize okay. it's very theoretical, but let's so go into the system of how it actually yeah. goes into the economy. So I see the banking, commercial banking system, they're all Fed members, they're all regulated. There's CAMELS regulation, right? Capital asset quality management, the whole thing. The, the, so, so these banks are agents of the Fed, right? Correct. Okay, and so the Fed has all these agents. It doesn't like what they're doing with individual accounts. You can just tell them. They can fire management tomorrow. They have total control. I owned a bank for 20-something years. It was a small bank. You know, sold It was a $45 million deal in the sold. But I was dealing with, you know, regulators, exit meetings all the time. And you're, you're, you're not a, you're like in the military. I mean, it's a you're, you're public sector as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, so why the Fed already has these agents to do things like checking accounts and savings accounts. Why would it bring them back in and just not have these agents it already has? If it's unhappy with the way its agents are performing, you can just tell them what to do. But how do okay. they get real wages up? If the goal- wait, 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 is, wait, we, got, we got other questions. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, so, so, so go ahead, Warren. Yeah, okay, so what you have, again, in the base case is instead of unemployment, the Fed can use employment as a buffer stock policy against inflation. Right now, we use unemployment as a buffer stock. If inflation goes up, we try and do things to get unemployment higher to try and hold wages down and slow the economy down. Instead, those people could all be employed in what's called a job guarantee. And, and again, that would be kept to a minimum the same way you keep unemployment to a minimum. And that would set the minimum wage in the economy. And then, then it becomes something the legislature can, can make a political decision with. And so that that's the ideal way to do it that I could, that I could see. So Warren, uh, we've got yeah. a few more questions. I don't know how how you how you're doing for time. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, okay. I'm, I'm an American here, and I want to see this work. <laughs> David Kelkley, Kelkey, I may have butchered that. So Dan, so thank you. First of all, thank you for indulging these questions. I'm still trying to understand the logic behind the theory. You said that lowering interest rates fights yeah. inflation. Yeah, yes. But in, but, but in the 1970s, uh, when Paul Volcker became the head of Fed, interest rates were increased. Yes. And then there was a big tax reduction in 1981. Yeah. And that seemed to actually drive the economy with uh, reducing the huge inflation and yeah. huge interest rates that we had. It brought it all down. So I'm wondering how that experience squares yeah. with, with your theory that lowering interest rates fights inflation. Yeah. Let, me, let me add the other thing you said. You said that uh, inflation is caused by government paying higher prices. Yes. Uh, but if uh, money, say, is transferred to the public, 
Yes. Uh, say in form of uh, higher unemployment insurance and so on. Yes. The public may pay, uh, then has money to spend. Yes. And will be willing to pay for higher prices. That's right. And so that greater government spending for that cause yeah. may increase inflation. So what I'm trying to understand with the modern modern uh, monetary yeah. theory is is whether or not there's at least an asterisk to it in terms of the ability to just print more money and that it really depends on how that money is used uh, yes, in terms of, of determining of whether or not there's inflation or not. But yeah. if, if the money is used in a way, if the government is spending more money, printing more money, but it's funneling it in a way that's going to create inflation, which itself yeah. can in increase interest rates, then you know it's it's really just the starting point. There's it's yeah. there's a so, lot of components that have to be considered to, yeah. to really yeah. make this theory work. Yeah. So the one. Th so like, all right. So I'll do this in reverse order. First on the fiscal spending. So the um, story I tell is if you spend money to build a Panama Canal, there'll be a deflationary event. You've lowered transportation costs and it'll expand the economy. So that deficit spending will be deflationary. If you uh, deficit spend to blow up the Panama Canal, it's gonna be a highly inflationary event. Okay, so it totally matters. Okay, and, and that's part of the analysis. It's, it's critical, it's everything. Okay, now, if the government gives you money and you spend it, you're spending as an agent of the government. Okay, rather than a corporation that got it through some kind of market set up within the government's institutional framework. but. That institutional framework will also, will also determine corporate pricing. That institutional framework is set up by the government. So it's prices paid directly, indirectly through agents, plus prices determined by institutional structures set up by government, the procurement methods, all this filters into it. It's, it's a simple monopoly. The government has the money, we need it. So it tells us what we have to do to get it. Monopolists are price set. Micro 101 takes 15 minutes to learn. If there's a monopoly and no competition, there's no markets, they're just setting the price. And that's what the money is. But this filter system to get it down to you that's been set up by this maze of institutional framework is all acting, you know, a part of the government's means of uh, telling you what you have to do to get the money. You don't just work for the government, you gotta wait in line and you gotta sign up here and you gotta get a blood test. I mean, it all adds up to government, you know, what, what you have to do to get the money from the government, right? So now back to interest rates. Uh, because we're time is short. What's I almost forgot your interest rate question. Was well, I was about, just talking about the lowering the you said lowering the interest rates yeah. like inflation. I was giving you the, the 1970s. Yeah, okay, 70s. 70s. So I I was at, I was there in the 70s uh, on the trading desk. I was at Bankers Trust. Uh, we were a primary dealer, and then I was with uh, William Blair and Company, fixed income arbitrage department. Then I had my own fund in 1982 again in fixed income. So I was on this stuff day to day. I remember. One Wednesday, Fed funds were 28 bid, no offer. Okay, but what I remember, what my narrative is that the rate hikes exacerbated the inflation and prolonged it. Okay, what we had was a foreign monopolist raising the price of oil. The control of the price of oil shifted from the Texas Railroad Commission when there was a surplus of oil in the U.S. and putting quotas to to make sure the price didn't go below 250 or three dollars. They put quotas on people and until demand globally increased to where we were no longer the marginal supplier. Everybody was at full capacity. And now the marginal supplier became Saudi Arabia and they had the excess capacity and they became price set. And they had a whole different agenda than we had, which was to leave the price at $3 for 20 years, which was a golden era 
with no low inflation and growth because we had this uh, oil surplus with the Texas Railroad Commission regulating the price, which you can do when you have a surplus, not when you have a shortage. So as soon as there was a shortage domestically and it was coming from overseas, that monopolist, they weren't nice guys like we were to ourselves. Okay. Suddenly the price goes from three to 40 over 10 years. That's like 12 times, 13 times. That's like today the price going from 50 to 13 times and 700, okay? That started, we had a cost push inflation. It pushed through everything, okay? And, and, and if you hold, held all other prices constant, wages and prices, and just let the Saudis get, you know, 13 times more dollars that with the same purchasing power, otherwise for their oil, you've got a massive shift in real terms of trade. Suddenly we're poor. All these things we're building are now going to them. Okay, but if you let all your prices go up, it's kind of like dueling monopolists, currency monopolists against the oil monopolists. And all our prices go up 13 times now, they're not ahead anymore. Well, they, there's no end to that, right? They can just keep going because it's a foreign monopolist. The only thing we could have done is send the fifth fleet over to you know, the Gulf and say, stop it. <laughs> you get $3 and that's it. No, didn't, didn't occur to anybody that that was a problem. Okay, there wasn't a real shortage of oil, anything like that. Well, what also happened at the same time, two other things. Number one, Carter deregulated a lot. He deregulated natural gas in 1978, which allowed um, public utilities to start shifting to natural gas from oil. Okay, and then we had the recession, which was an even larger force and came on more quickly, 1979, and that dropped oil demand precipitously. Saudis cut uh, to try and hold the price. Their sales went down. OPEC sales went down 15 million barrels a day. And they couldn't do any more without capping the wells. And the whole thing broke and the price went to 10 and stayed there for a long time. Now, what I see as caused the recession was not the rise in interest rates. Because we had more housing starts when mortgages were 15% than we have today, okay, when they're 3.5%. We had 200 million people instead of 350 million people. We had more housing starts. So to tell me that the housing market is sensitive to interest rates, well, maybe goes up and down for a week or something, but I don't see it. Okay, it's always it's a function of other things, right? And so um, what happened was because of the inflation, the the public debt in real terms dropped. The public debt's the money supply, remember. So when you have, if prices double, then the size of the public debt in real terms is cut in half, whatever percent of GDP it is, right? GDP, nominal GDP doubles, so the price public, we're at 28 trillion and we're 100% of GDP. If GDP goes to 50 trillion one day, the public debt's now only half, right? And so the money, the real money supply dropped by half. <laughs> and so it created this, it created this, they call it a technical surplus. The, the uh, I remember at the time, the, uh, whoever it was, OMB and all that. You know, so even though the deficit, the public debt went up in nominal terms, it was going down in real terms because of the tight fiscal policy. Now, why did that happen? Because with inflation, everybody went into higher tax brackets. They called it bracket creep. And so the, the actual, and in the actual deficit spending dropped. Okay, even though the economy in nominal terms was growing, the public debt dropped. It created a massive recession from fiscal policy. And then oil dropped from 40 to 10 or 15 over a couple of years. What happens today if oil drops by two thirds? Immediately CPI is negative. Immediately inflation comes down. Why did that inflation not come down for 10 years? It took 10 years to go from 14 or 15 to three because the interest rates were high. The interest rates were supporting it. They're paying it out. And it's through two channels, 
people earning interest, you're just spewing out income to people with no supply on the other side. It's just pure demand. And it's basic income for people who already have money. And it's massive amounts at 15% or whatever they were paying. It only came down slowly, 12, 10, 11. The other thing is forward pricing. So if you want to buy a house and the builder looks at what it's going to cost him to build the house over the next year, he's got to borrow for all these materials. The forward pricing on these materials, the cost including interest, is much higher than if you build it spot. You have a, a, you know, an inflationary term structure of prices equal to the interest rate. And that was phased into everything. You know, a gold miner knew based on the interest rate, he could get the price of gold a couple of years out was you know, double. So it made sense to do all this stuff and, and you know, pay more for materials because you could get double selling it forward. Okay, so um, you've got the interest income channels and, and you've got the forward pricing channels. Both work to prolong that inflation and it didn't come down until I don't know, 10 years later, it came down to 3%. Or so anyway, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right. Jeff uh, Renard, and, uh, you got the next to last question, and then Bill Kunkler, and then uh, Bill Gosson is going to close for us. Thanks. Yeah, your, your discussion about interest rates presupposes that we have the unilateral ability to set rates. And my question is, if... If there's a loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar and the credit worthiness of the country, do we still have the ability to keep rates low, or do we have to raise rates in order to to sell bonds? No, it's it's a complete case of monopoly. The Fed is a single supplier of balances to its member banks called reserves, and they set the rate. It's called now in um, under monopoly, a monopolist sets two prices. One is how his his item. Uh, let's say you've got a copper monopoly or something exchanges for other goods and services you just set your price and the other thing is how copper trades for itself which the austrians call the own rate and that name came from an economist named marshall a couple hundred years ago how it trades for itself so the u.s government sets two prices for its commodity its thing which is the currency its tax credit number one is how it exchanges for other goods and services which is my thing about prices paid they have the dollars that we need it tells us what you have to do to get them and how the dollar exchanges for more dollars, that's the interest rate, that's set by the Fed. So it's set by a vote. The markets don't change the rate, the Fed does. They, they sit and they vote, they discuss it, they discuss it, and then they vote up, down, or unchanged in every meeting. The market has never changed that rate. The market may sec, tries, the market always tries to guess what the Fed's gonna do next. They, they wanna know the Fed's reaction function. Oh, if prices go up, the Fed's gonna raise rates. So now the 10-year note goes up. Not because of, of the markets per se, but because of the, the, the presumed Fed's reaction functions to raise rates. And the euro dollar futures will tell you exactly what the market thinks the Fed's reaction function is going to cause. Okay. And so uh, now, if you have a fixed exchange rate, then the market sets it. So Bulgaria, Hong Kong, uh, those places, they can't set their rate. When we're on the gold standard, you can't set the rate because it would affect your gold flows. You know, it'd be a disaster. So it's, the market sets rates with fixed exchange rates, which we haven't had effectively since 1934. And for floating exchange rates, which pretty much everybody has now, the central bank has to set the rate by vote. I had a meeting with uh, Chairman Bernanke and my partner years ago, and he made the statement that um, when investment picked up, it would use up the available funds and drive up interest rates. And I just changed the subject. I didn't want to get in an argument or anything, but that's the gold standard. 
and he had got his PhD on the gold standard and how it affected the depression in 1930. And he was absolutely right for that period of time, but it just wasn't applicable. But, <laughs> so, but that, that's true while we're the world's dominant economy. But no, any floating exchange rate, any floating, the yen, the Australian dollar. Oh, I, I remember talking to Mexico in the 1994, 1995 crisis, talking to the central banks because dollar rates had gone up and guy with me asked about this rate on setes or local currency. I said, what about setes? You having any interest? He says, no, no, it's just whatever rate we set. So there's, it, it's never in local currency. There's never, the central bank always sets the rate and they were pretending not to set it. They were pretending that they were using the market to set the rates. And I started asking him a couple of technical questions. And he just kind of started laughing. He goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. We set the rate. That's not our story. So the guys in the Weimar Republic just screwed up then. They, they could have set a lower rate and sold their bonds? Oh, yeah. But see, they had a different agenda. They were, they were against the war reparations. And so they wanted it to be bad. They didn't want this thing to work out. And, and it was bad enough where they stopped the war reparations. The interesting thing is the war reparations demanded exports. Okay, And Germany, after World War II, they said, we're not going to do that again to Germany. We're not going to do that to Japan. Look what happened in the Treaty of Versailles. Well, if you look at the record since World War II, Germany and Japan have both net exported at a much higher rate than we ever demanded out of Germany from the Treaty of Versailles. And they're doing it voluntarily, and they think they're winning because we've got the import and export thing backwards. They all think exports are benefits and imports are costs. And so does you know, the U.S. That was Trump's policy, and it was supported by the Democrats. I saw 90% approval for this stuff. China is eating our lunch and all that. China's the world's slaves. They're sending us stuff and they're getting tax credits into the Fed. You know, in real terms, we're winning and they're they're working and we're playing. You know, I say economics is the op opposite of religion. It's better to receive than to give. Yeah. <laughs> no lack of conviction there. Bill Conkler, you had the last question before Bill Galston closes. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been an interesting conversation, but I'm not convinced. I think if tomorrow the Fed announced that the United States was going to practice modern monetary theory, the world would give us a real slap in the face and um, it would it would erode confidence. I know I, I read somewhere years ago that just having so-called world reserve currency status is worth $500 billion to our economy every year. In some ways, that is a free lunch, just the fact that we can use our paper instead of, you know, X number of labor hours in exchange for, you know, goods coming in around the world. So if if we said we're going to take our, our national debt from 25 trillion, let's say to 50 trillion in the next 10 years, I, I think I think just the wheels would come off the bus. I'm no economist, but I would immediately, if I knew the, that our government was going to this policy, I would try to go buy, you know, not gold, but I'd want to buy farmland and any, anything that I knew yeah. was a hedge against inflation. Okay, well, look, that would not be doing MMT. MMT is a framework to analyze that policy and look at the ramifications. And I might agree with you with those ramifications of that policy. And if, and if you use my framework for analysis, the modern monetary theory framework for analysis, you know, the interest rates and this whole thing, you come up, you might come up with exactly that answer you've got, but you got to go through the analysis. And I don't have the data to, you know, I don't have the econometrics to do it. And it might be 50 trillion might blow the roof off. And maybe it, 
maybe it takes 60. I don't know. I'd have to go through the numbers. And then really quickly, I'm not arguing yeah. like for austerity right now. I think that's a mistake, but I think yeah. you need to spend yeah. the money. You need to, you need to have people in money's pockets, putting, you know, keeping the system going. But once there's an expectation that when a crisis is over, you're going yeah. back to a disciplined regime. That's all. Yeah. So I, and I, I completely agree with you. So what I'm saying, when I look at these policies, the 1.9 trillion, to me, it's pretty much all unemployment compensation, directly or indirectly. For the state, just to keep people on the payroll, they're not going to be increasing spending. And so that means when people do go back to work and get jobs, all the spending stops. And so it's, it's highly countercyclical right now. And so in that sense, you know, it gives me some comfort that if there is a one-time increase, might happen in prices, but that if you do, if it does, if the economy does pick up, all of a sudden federal spending drops precipitously, right? Because all, all this goes away. Or let's say the, the growth, the growth, the growth of federal spending stops, not the, not the actual spending, but the growth stops. Bill Galston, makes give us some perspective on all the interesting and insightful comments that Warren's provided us with tonight, and no lack of conviction for sure. <laughs> well. <laughs> this has been, you know, a mind-blowing discussion <laughs> uh, because I, I think it's fair to say that just about everybody on this call has grown up thinking about these relationships in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, and now we're being asked to go through the looking glass and see them reversed. Yeah. Uh, this is not easy, right? It's, you know, it's like looking at the famous black and white picture of a rabbit and a candlestick. And instead of fixating on the candlestick, you have to look at the rabbit. Uh, and, you know, and, and so I think uh, if I were, you know, if I were to describe the net impact of what we've heard, you know, it is to trouble our settled convictions yes. without necessarily changing them. Right, 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 and I'm sure this is not the first time you've encountered this. Right, uh, and uh, you know, and you know, so for example, you know, as as everybody remembers, last month's Fed auction did not go well, and that failed auction was seen, you know, conventionally anyway, you know, as putting upward pressure on interest rates. Nobody wanted what the Fed was offering, and so they had to offer higher interest rates to induce people, you know, who were going to take these pieces of paper, uh, in fact, to accept them. And you know, so I'd say one of you know one of the most one of the interesting questions that you've raised, you know, is from your statement: the Fed sets the rates. That's not the way it looks. Now maybe it's the way it is, but it's not the way it looks. You know, it looks it looks as though the market, that is the relationship between the amount of paper that the Fed is putting out there and the demand for that, that is setting the rates. Uh, and you know, and and so you're asking us in effect not to believe the evidence of our own senses. You know, and well, well, that's the at, consequence of yeah, the way but, you're using the word. But you're not talking about three month Treasury bills. You're talking about bonds that are subject to variation due to changes in Fed policy rates. And there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the policy rate will be, which causes uncertainty in those 
of those bond prices. But the Treasury doesn't have to sell those. Uh, you're absolutely right, right? Yeah. It can, in effect, sell them to themselves or just can print money. At any rate, this well, would be sell, a prolonged sell, conversation. No, but they can sell all the three-month bills they want. There's no limit to that. Well, we shall see. Yeah. We shall see. Uh, at any rate, uh, I, you know, uh, I just want to thank you sure. for raising all of these questions and for forcing us to rethink things that we thought we were sure about. Uh, and at least from at least from Socrates' standpoint, that's a step forward. Good, good, so good. Whether it's a step forward in public policy, we shall see. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, you know that's. You know, I'm not going to try half to, to to sum up all of the questions we've heard. <laughs> yeah. uh, that is beyond my poor powers to add or detract. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, let's leave this very provocative conversation as what it is yeah. and end by thanking you for giving us your time so generously. And we yeah. really do mean that. Well, and I appreciate all your interest in this because I do see it as leading to better public policy. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.